Dear Heavenly Father, we have just prayed that your word is powerful. And so, Father, we pray that you would open up your word to us this, this evening. Show us the richness of your gospel afresh and the life-giving hope it brings. In Jesus' name, amen. A few years ago, I had my first experience of grief. I lost three grandparents within 12 months. In the summer of my final year at school, my granddad died suddenly from a heart attack. I was completely unprepared, as I never had a chance to say goodbye, because he passed away without warning. And in the next few days, I felt waves of grief crash over me. Each wave of grief felt like being knocked by a sledgehammer. In the first few days, I would weep uncontrollably every few hours. And over the next few months, a person in the crowd or uh, a picture would remind me of my granddad, and the, the wounds of grief would open up again. It was far worse when I lost my granny six months later. She died slowly as her body, as her body withered slowly. It was frightening to see her lose her strength so quickly. And again, the next few months, cycles of grief would hit me. They say grief is like an unwelcome guest that comes knocking again and again. It's very destabilizing. It clowns our vision, and it numbs us from the world around us. And it can make us want to doubt God's goodness. So I don't know if you've ever experienced grief, but many of us here will know the immense pain of losing someone. I've been fairly lucky in terms of grief, but many of us here will have suffered far worse, whether it's the loss of a parent, a grandparent, a spouse, or a child. So how do we respond when grief comes our way? How do we respond when a loved one dies? How can we help each other as a church family to deal with grief? Well, in order to face grief, we need to know what happens when we die. And firstly, I would like to say that Christians aren't immune from facing grief. We live in a fallen world. We experience pain and death like everyone else. And so it's very normal to grieve as a Christian. Even Jesus experienced the full torrent of grief. In John 11, he went to the funeral of his friend Lazarus. And when he got to the tomb, he broke down and wept. And tears streamed down from his face. And this is staggering because in the next few verses, he raised Lazarus from the dead. And yet he wept. And this episode of Jesus weeping by Lazarus's tomb became an immense anchor of comfort for me. When I lost my granddad, it was so comforting to know that Jesus knew my pain. He knew the pain of losing a loved one. Jesus isn't some distant deity who has never experienced suffering. No, quite the opposite. He became a man of sorrows, a man familiar with suffering. He experienced all the pain of death and more. And in grief, it can often feel as though we're alone. It can feel that no one, no one can relate to our pain. And sometimes it feels awkward coming to church and saying happy, smiling Christians. But if anyone can relate to us, it's Jesus. He meets us in our darkest valleys. And he weeps with us. And he promises to walk with us in our pain. In fact, he promises a special nearness to the brokenhearted. Psalm 34:18 says, The Lord is close to the brokenhearted. 
and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. But Jesus doesn't only empathize with us or walk with us in our dark valleys. He offers hope, a joy-producing hope, even in the midst of our grief. And so if we're to have any hope, we need to know what happens when we die. And this was a particular issue for the Thessalonians that the Apostle Paul wrote to you in his letters. They were a small, faithful church family facing intense persecution. And we see hints of this persecution throughout the letter. So look back down, look back to 1 6. 1 6. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. In spite of severe suffering, you welcome the message with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. Or chapter 2, verse 14. You suffered from your own countrymen the same things those churches suffered from the Jews, who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. Or again in 3, verse 4. You know quite well that we were destined for them. Uh, in fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted. And it turned out the way, as you well know. So it's probable that many of these Thessalonians were grieving the loss of their brothers and sisters in Christ. It's likely that many had been martyred for their faith in Jesus. And so can you imagine how the Thessalonians must have felt? Imagine coming to St. John's every week and seeing more and more gaps. Uh, people have been taken away. So last week it may have been David Rue. This week it may have been Tom Watts. So can you imagine just how shaken this church family would have been from the effects of grief? And so Paul is eager to write to them. The first thing we see is that we can grieve with hope. And that's our first heading. We can grieve with hope. So have a look at verse 13 of chapter 4. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. So firstly, Paul doesn't want them to be ignorant about what happens when we die. Instead, he wants them to have certainty about death. And the primary picture the Bible uses is falling asleep as Christians. We see this falling asleep language a few times. We see it in verse 13, 14, and 15. And it's not just Paul who uses this language of falling asleep. Jesus used the same language. Think of Jairus' daughter when uh, she had died unexpectedly. She said, Jesus said, she is not dead, but asleep. Or Lazarus, I've gone there to wake him up. But what does this mean? Well, falling asleep implies that we'll be woken up. Falling asleep implies that death isn't the end, but the resurrection is the end point. And the Bible doesn't give too many details of our initial state after death, other than this falling asleep language. In some sense, it will mean being with Christ. That's what Paul says in Philippians 1. He says he desires to depart and to be with Christ, which is better by far. Or to remember the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise, Jesus told him. So in some sense, when we die as Christians, we will go to be with Christ in paradise. But in another sense, we will be asleep in him. It won't be our final destination. But the Bible gets way, way more excited about the final resurrection, when our bodies will be raised in glory, which we heard about in our first reading in 1 Corinthians. 
And didn't it sound wonderful? Our bodies will no longer be plagued by decay, no longer plagued by weakness or death. Our bodies will no longer be riddled with sin, always taking us away from God. Instead, they will be raised powerful. They'll be raised imperishable. They'll be raised glorious. And our wills and our desires will be perfect. We will enjoy an intimacy with God we cannot fathom. And so falling asleep isn't the end, but when our bodies are raised. The Bible's more excited about life after life after death. And secondly, they're not to grieve like the rest of men. You have no hope. So there really is a vast difference between Christian funerals and non-Christian funerals. At non-Christian funerals, people will say anything for a sense of comfort. They say things like, at least he lived a good 80 years. Or he's in a better place now. Or she's looking down uh, on us. But often there's no basis for these statements. Whereas Christians can grieve with hope. Solid, dependable hope. Joy-producing hope. Yes, we will experience all the pain that grief brings. But in the midst of our pain, there is a hope. A solid source of comfort. But I hear you ask, isn't that just more wishful thinking? Empty comfort clothed in religious language. Well, absolutely not. Because the Christian hope is, isn't flimsy or fake. It's absolutely solid and dependable. And it's infinitely more solid than any hope this world will offer. And why? Because Jesus is coming back. Jesus will certainly return. If the New Testament teaches anything, it's that Jesus is coming back gets more airtime than the cross or the resurrection. It's one of the most taught uh, doctrines in all of scripture. And so he's coming back. And so we can agree with hope because he is coming back. That's our second heading. So have a look again at verse 13. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again And so, we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. The center of the Christian hope is that Jesus will return. He's coming back. But how can we be sure that he's coming back? Will he suddenly materialize in the sky? Well, we can be sure, as the verse says, through his death and resurrection. The basis of our hope is the gospel. By his death on the cross, Jesus paid the penalty for our sin so that we can be completely forgiven. He drained the cup of God's anger that should have been poured out on us so that we could be put right with God. But Jesus didn't stay in the, in the grave because on the third day he rose victoriously from the, from the dead. And through his resurrection, he blasted a hole through death. And by his death and resurrection... He has swallowed up death forever. And now Jesus is alive and reigning in heaven. And one day he'll come back. Did you see the logic in verse 13? We believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so, therefore, we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. And uh, Jesus won't be coming alone. He'll bring everyone asleep in him. 
Now, in the Thessalonian church, there was a fear that those who had been martyred for Christ had somehow missed Jesus' return. They were outside of God's promises, that's what they thought. But Paul is eager to correct this misunderstanding. So have a look at verse 15. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. Now this would have been so comforting to the church family that their beloved friends were secure in Christ. I'm looking forward to one day to becoming a father. And I've been told it's a magical moment when after a long day walking about, your child falls asleep in your arms. They rest at ease, completely safe, knowing that mum and dad will bring them safely home. And in a similar way, when we fall asleep in Christ, we can rest at ease in him, knowing that he will bring us home to the new creation. In this life, we can never be snatched from the good shepherd's hands. And in death as well, we can never be snatched from his hands. But I suppose we're still left with questions of what Jesus' return will look like. Doesn't it sound a bit like a science fiction movie? Well, Paul paints a portrait in the next few verses. It won't answer all of our questions, but it tells us what we need to know. So verse 16. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a cry of command and the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. Jesus' return will be completely unmissable. It will be cataclysmic. Every eye will see his coming. Every ear will hear his coming. They will hear the cry of command, the archangel's voice, and the trumpet of God. And these sounds are victory language. So when kings won battles in in history with their armies and they came to a new town or city, they would announce their victory with trumpets. You would hear the cry of the army, the cry of the army commander as they approached. And so Jesus won't return as a helpless baby as he did at Christmas time. No, he will return in the fullness of his majesty, in the fullness of his glory, in the fullness of his power. He will come unmistakably as our victorious king. And every knee will bow before him, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, willingly and unwillingly. It will be a glorious day for his people, a day of unending joy and celebration. It will be a day when we're vindicated, when we begin to experience the fullness of our salvation. But it will be a terrible day for unbelievers. Jesus will come in fiery judgment for those who persist in opposing him. There will be nowhere to hide from his awesome majesty. There will be no escape. And so if you're not a Christian here today, do you know what's coming? There is a wrath to come, a final day of judgment. And I know that sounds scary, but it's a wonderful thing because every injustice, every senseless act of violence, like teenagers being stabbed in London, every act of evil will be dealt with. And if any of us here have been wronged, then we'll know the cry of justice rings loudly from our hearts. But all of us have evil in our hearts, which needs to be forgiven. The heart of the problem is that our hearts are the problem. All of us have hurt others, and all of us have hurt God. 
And the wonderful news is that Jesus today offers salvation from the coming wrath. Have a look at 1 verse 10. They wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Or 5 verse 9. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus drained the cup of God's wrath, God's perfect, pure anger, that would have taken an eternity to be poured out on us. He drained it in three hours. And so we can either embrace him now as Saviour and King and experience his salvation, or one day we'll face him as our judge. And so are we ready for his return? He is coming back. But there's more to the picture of his return in our verses. We're told in verse 16 that the dead in Christ will rise first and that we who are still alive will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet them in the air. Now this sounds really, really strange to us, doesn't it? Will we start levitating or flying up to him? The, uh, the brethren churches often had a window uh, in the ceiling so that when the Lord returned from the sky, they would be able to see him. I think maybe we should get a window installed for that purpose. But again, I think this is a picture language. So historically, when kings returned home from battle, a delegation party would go out to meet them. And I think it's something similar going on here. Jesus' people will form a vast, massive delegation party from every tribe, tongue, and nation. We will welcome Jesus as our king. But there's more to his return, because we will be with the Lord forever. That's in verse 17. We will be with the Lord forever. And this surely is the heartbeat of the Christian hope. That when Jesus returns, we as his people will be with him forever. All of God's people through the ages, united under his, his kingship. And, the, and so there are many things which make the new creation wonderful. There will be no more crying or pain or death. There will be a world which far surpasses any beauty in this world. It will be a world where eternal glory far outweighs the suffering we endure now. But the real treasure of heaven is that Jesus will be there, and we will be with him forever, because Jesus is the joy of heaven. The anthem of heaven is, worthy is the lamb who was slain. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. And so, in glory, we'll never fathom the infinite depths of Calvary. And we will rejoice at the sheer mercy of being there with him. Every day will be unimaginable joy and bliss as we will see Jesus face to face, his, war, his wounds shining brightly. And it will never end. Every now and then, as a Christian, we experience deep joy and it overflows. But how quickly does this experience fade? as the pressures and struggles of life cave in on us. But one day our joy will never end. The joy we experience now is but a faint glimmer of the joy we'll have with him forever. So doesn't this picture of Jesus' return give us hope? Can you imagine how comforting this picture would have been to the Thessalonians? To know that the loved ones who had died, this future was their future as well. So even in the pain of grief, we can grieve with hope 
because Jesus is coming back. And so how are we to respond to this hope? Well, it's clear from verse 18. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. And that's our final heading. So in grief, encourage one another with hope. So how can we do this as a church family? What will it look like for us to encourage one another with hope? When my granny died, it affected my mum very deeply. The smallest smell or flower or person in the crowd would set her off. And in the months after granny passed, she found it so hard coming to church. It just felt so awkward. But there was a wonderful Christian lady named Jo Phillips who really got alongside my mum. She wasn't afraid to ask mum how she was coping with grief. And she even wrote out a few prayers for mum to say, reminding her of great truths, which was of great help to my mum. She found she couldn't pray. But I think the best thing Jo did for my mum was her friendship, simply pointing her to Christ and the hope we have in him. And so how are we as a church in helping each other through grief? Some questions to consider. How often do we speak about Jesus' return to one another? Certainly for me, it's not very often I speak about his return. It's been said that his return is a forgotten doctrine, which seems completely backward, because as we've seen, it's the very centre of our hope. But the more his return fills our hearts, the more we'll speak about it. So why not take some time to meditate on his return? Think of that day when we will see him coming down from the sky, and we will be with him forever. Or do we make time for people who are grieving, getting them around for dinner, or sending a thoughtful text can go a very, very long way. And it's tempting to withdraw from grieving people as we fear embarrassment, we fear the awkwardness. But we cannot do that. We need each other, especially in hard times. And so invest deeply in friendship with one another. And I think as a church family, we're doing this really well. It's wonderful to see such a loving church family who shoulder each other's burdens so well. But we can do so more and more. And so in this life, we all experience grief. We all experience the pain of losing people. But in the face of grief, we have a solid hope. Jesus is coming back. And so let's make every effort to point each other to this wonderful hope we have in Christ. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, praise you so much for the Lord Jesus. Praise you that the the Lord Jesus knows the depths of our grief and promises to walk with us in our darkest valleys. Praise you that his return is absolutely certain because he died and rose again. And praise you that we will be with him forever, always rejoicing in him. So help us to long for that day and to be ready for our return. And Father, for those of us grieving here today, please, Father, be uh, their strength, their hope, their comfort. And Father, please help us to encourage one another with the hope we have in Christ, especially in, in hard times. For your glory, in Jesus' name. Amen.